Our speaker tonight is, when I read his biography, I wasn't sure whether we were going to introduce a great historian or James Bond, because he's, he's a former researcher for the CIA. Uh, he's a, I can remember, a uh, former director of the Army's German-speaking prisoner of war interrogation unit during World War II. Uh, uh, attended the British Intelligence School, which is more than many of us uh, ever did. Uh, he is now the director of the Lancaster campus of the University of South Carolina, a fellow of the Society of Military Historians, an advisor on the Civil War Centennial Commission, and a consulting editor for the Civil War Times Illustrated. And he's author of many books, probably uh, my favorite anyway, is the Civil War Collector's Encyclopedia and numerous other books. Uh, I believe the next book uh, coming out is the Civil War Settlers. And we had a long talk at lunch, and it sounds like it's going to be a great book. And he's a most gracious gentleman. and. And for coming to Chicago from South Carolina in this kind of weather, he deserves a great deal of credit, and I know you're going to be pleased to meet him tonight, Dr. Francis Laurie. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, I'm not a member of the 104th. <laughs> uh, nor did I ever play for the White Sox. Uh, Arnold, if you can have your cohorts bring those guns up, we'll save some time. I'm going to pass around a couple examples of, of ammunition. I hope they return back here eventually. But you can look at them while I'm discussing uh, the weapons. Now, this is not going to be a discussion just of weapons. There's been apparently two or three schools of thought on, um, on the Civil War. One group would have us think that the only thing important in the war was the social change that took place among oppressed peoples. There was no fighting. There's another school which emphasizes weapons at the expense of, of anything else. And then there are other groups that emphasize battles without any real research into the types of weapons used, and so forth. Tonight I want to talk with you about the weapons used in the war, and especially about the tactics that they used in the Civil War. How did it happen that men fought shoulder to shoulder when it had been demonstrated decades before that it was mass murder to send <coughs> close-order formations against men armed with a rifle which would kill it? 500 yards. So as background, I'd like to stress the point, first of all, that we have now had three major <coughs> wars since the Industrial Revolution began. The Industrial Revolution began in England about the middle of the 18th century. Since that time, we've had the Civil War, World War I and World War II as major wars uh, during this Industrial Revolution, which is still going on. The Industrial Revolution, with its effect on weapons, was not realized by military commanders of the last century and certainly not of World War I. So what I want to do tonight with you is to throw out some ideas about how we got the tactics that, that were used in the Civil War what lessons were learned and what lessons were not learned from the effect of the Industrial Revolution on, on military warfare. I became interested in this years ago when I was a little kid listening to my grandfather discuss the Battle of Opecon or Winchester on uh, September 19, 1864. In this battle, uh, he was wounded, and the three men in his set of fours were all killed uh, in a, an attack across a 400-yard uh, sloping area in close formation. And with childlike simplicity, I said, well, why didn't you open up? He said, we weren't supposed to. 
The orders from the officers in back constantly were close up, close up. And as the men would be hit, uh, the, the ranks would constantly, constantly close in. Now this was in 1864. Uh, the war was in its last year. Now why was it that Sheridan, a West Pointer, a comparatively young general, without the fixed ideas, presumably, of an older man, why did he send his infantry a mass assault against an enemy of veteran troops across an open field that far without, open, in, without an open formation? So I used to wonder about that, and in the last few months, I've been doing a, quite a bit of research on how did we get our tactics, or why did we adopt Jomini Napoleonic tactics when we'd learned so much from the Revolution and the War of 1812. What was it that made our military leaders stick to, to tactics which obviously were out of date? And so tonight I'd like to share with you briefly uh, what conclusions I've come to so far. First of all, there is a very interesting question which comes to mind. Did we learn from Europe during and before the Civil War, or did they learn from us? Uh, so I've done quite a bit of reading in, in German and French books on the 1866 <coughs> war between Austria and Prussia and the uh, Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 on whether they learned anything from the mistakes we made. And, and I think you all realize that we have to disassociate our minds here from hero worship and uh, our natural tendency to feel that since we won World War I and won World War II, we were better, we had nothing to learn. Those of you who remember the French debacle of 1940 would realize that the French who had won World War I had learned nothing after 1918. And the more you read, the more you think, the more you realize that there is a very real danger in professional soldiers being conditioned not to have initiative. We, history is replete with examples of a country being one war behind the times. Now, I don't, do not pretend to intimate that uh, professional soldiers are inferior in any way. I have a son at Annapolis now, and he assures me that uh, they're beginning to open up the curriculum there beyond just the great, great ground type of drill. But we certainly made some mistakes, and there's no question in my mind at all that the Civil War did not have to be the bloodiest war we've ever had that the lessons were there to see, and the question that constantly comes to my mind, why didn't they see them? For, for example, why did Grant uh, charge at Cold Harbor? He admits it was a mistake. But this is 1864. Uh, Lee learned his mistake after Malvern Hill, and except at Gettysburg. But why, why adhere to the old tactics? Well, it goes back to the training that they had at West Point. Our tradition at West Point, up through the Civil War, was the French tradition. We, the United States, both sides, the Union, Confederate officers, commanders, of course, most of them were West Pointers. They had gone to school under Mayen, Alfred Mayen, who was professor of military tactics at West Point from about 1830 the 1870. Mayen was a devotee of Napoleonic strategy and tactics. He was a, a worshiper of Jomini, who was a Swiss general attached to Napoleon's uh, forces. Later he went over to the other side and fought with the Russians. He did not read or study anything about the other great military pupil, Clausewitz, who whom I'll mention later in another connection. All our commanders from Scott on through were adherents of the Mahan school who in turn got his ideas of close order uh, tactics from Jomini. Now, what 
Mayen didn't realize was that the Industrial Revolution was going on and that the weapons, which we'll discuss in a minute, had completely made obsolete close order formations. Because from up until the Civil War, until the rifle musket came into general use, tactics were based on a savage discipline. That's why the British were so good and, and won so many times. Men fought in close formation. They didn't dare run or they'd be shot down. The um, artillery, which was an assault weapon in those days, would blast a hole into the lines on the other side. Meanwhile, the well-trained regular troops would stand firm. They would deliver volleys on command and help blast that hole in the other line and then move in and clean up with the banner. Now these were the tactics that had held because of the short range of the smoothbore musket and the superiority of artillery over the smoothbore musket. The average soldier with a smoothbore <coughs> flintlock musket or even a smoothbore percussion musket uh, could kill at no more than 75 yards. The uh, artillery using grape and canister outranged this. So in Napoleon's time and on up through the Mexican War, the dominant weapon on the battlefield was artillery. And in Europe, the artillery could be massed, and Napoleon used it very, uh, very ingeniously. But what happened as a result of the of the Industrial Revolution was the development of these rifles which would start killing at 500 yards and 600 yards and would kill if, if you could hit a man if you're good enough shot at a thousand yards in some cases. As a result, the mass, the mass formations would begin to break up at 500 yards before they could ever close or close with the enemy. And many commanders in the Civil War on both sides never appreciated this fact. They stuck to what they had learned at the point under Mayer. The three systems of tactics used during the war were Scott's tactics, which, were, uh, which came out in 1835. Scott had been to France. He disliked the British, therefore he would not study their tactics, though they were not much better. Hardy's tactics, which came out in 1855, and Casey's tactics, which came out in 18, uh, 1862. All these gentlemen had been to France, had studied the French army, which had had the most experience in warfare during the first half of the last century. Now, the only change in the mass formations which uh, 18th century armies used was the use of skirmishes. The French had found in fighting in Algeria that they couldn't cope with the uh, tribesmen there by mass formation, so they developed a system of skirmishes. These skirmishes would precede the massed formations which would come up and back and try to uh, get the enemy to commit himself and maybe pick off some officers and feel out the enemy in the approach march and then the, the very close, compact lines would move forward. The, um, the tragedy, I think, of all this is that we did not, the Americans did not use what had, they had instinctively learned from service with the British regulars and against them and with the French regulars back from the time of Braddock on up through the War of 1812. Now the American soldier then and now is not a machine soldier. He does not see much sense to being, he didn't then, in, in being very good at parade and fighting the same way. Now the British regular uh, tradition was exactly that. Uh, Washington, who should have known better, frankly, uh, we admire him greatly for his character and all that, but he was not, he never understood the American soldier. He never understood that it was instinctive to take cover and to spread out. He tried to fight the British the way the British were best. 
he played that type of ball game. And whenever he got in the open, they clobbered him at White Plains and Brandywine and those other battles in New York in the early 1770s. The American soldier is not a machine soldier. We learned the lesson time and again. The best troops in, at Saratoga were the riflemen. There were rifles in those days who, picking up, who picked off the British officers at ranges up to 400 yards. The British never could get over it. They, they didn't fight in close formation. One thing that Washington never appreciated, I think, was the fact that terrain didn't permit it. And when the Civil War came, the Confederate soldier, with more initiative, less regimentation, fought that type of way, <coughs> that, that type, after Lee uh, learned a couple lessons on the peninsula. So we had a tradition of common sense fighting for our type of people in our type of terrain. But we threw it all overboard. The good soldier was a soldier who drilled the best. The good soldier was a soldier who kept his brass shined all the time. My gosh, what did they learn from Braddock? Braddock's army with the red coats and the white gaiters and the white clay cross belts with a brass ornament right here, going through the woods like a long red snake and the French and Indians uh, just taking them in ambush and just cutting them to pieces. Fine in Europe, beautiful to watch, but it's not common sense. I brought along to show you just a couple things that <coughs> came from battlefields in Chancellorsville, and maybe you've seen it in the book. Chancellorsville in the wilderness. These had to be kept shined. A soldier was, was in trouble if he took the brass eagle off his cross belt or if he took the buckle off his belt. The men who wore these may have been accidental, I agree, but each, each man that wore these was killed. They made <coughs> wonderful targets, and they had to be kept shined. A good soldier was shined all the time. What did they learn from, from Braddock? What did they learn from New Orleans? They had learned, they had, they had stuck with the traditional European type of fighting which used men of less initiative, are more conducive to um, restraint. We threw overboard some of the natural traits which makes the American soldier a tremendously good fighting man when he finally gets, gets mad enough to, to do it. The, um, I'll, I'd like to go to the weapons now and, and show you a little bit about um, of what we're talking about, about the improvement in weapons. The weapons were improved, but the tactics <coughs> improvement didn't go along with the weapons. We were technologically ahead of the, of the training at West Point. Now I brought along a flintlock. It was too cumbersome to carry a flintlock musket on the airplane. They might think I was going to try to take them to Cuba with it. <laughs> After looking at the hostess who poured some coffee on me, I would gladly have seen her in Cuba. But <laughs> this is a British officer's pistol of the Revolution, but the, the, it's the principle I want to talk about. This is a flintlock. This was smoothbore. This is uh, the type of mechanism that was used up through the Mexican War. It's smoothbore. They took uh, the ramrod out, they poured some powder in, poured the ball, tapped it down, Put some powder in the pan. That's why you get a flash in the pan when it doesn't go off. Then by pulling the trigger, the flint hits the steel. The spark, this prison comes down. The spark ignites the powder here. There's a hole going into the barrel. And the thing would go off about two out of five times. This is lethal only at a very short range because you have a round ball. And the gas pressure, of course, is, as you know, it's only this much against the round ball. You don't have a completely flat surface for the entire pressure to hit. Now, from, from the time this pistol was used until the, until the Civil War, several things had happened in weapons. First of all, the flintlock had gone, and they had, um, incidentally, this, this is the most beautiful musket I've ever seen in my life. It's tremendous. I, 
almost hate to handle. It's gorgeous. I'll tell you, I've seen a few. This is it. Put it on half cocked. The flint locks had disappeared, and they had uh, made the percussion, the nipple. Now, this is the same principle. You have a hole going into the, um, into the barrel. And you, you floating around here somewhere, you'll see a little copper. Um, oh, you, you haven't started around here? No, it just came around. Okay, you've seen that. The little percussion cap that goes on. This, this is not much of an improvement over the flintlock musket, as I'll try to show in a moment. But as far as loading is concerned, however, it is rifled, and it's lethal at a great di further distance than the musket. But there were improvements on this. Let's, let's uh, describe this first very briefly. Now, uh, this is a principal weapon of the Civil War, the Springfield or this Mason contract and other contractors for the federal side, and generally the 577 Enfield for the Confederate side, which is similar to this in general work. Now, a, a soldier in combat would have to do the following to shoot. First of all, he would have to have good teeth because he has to take this, this paper bullet and tear the paper off. He'd, he'd draw the ramrod first of all. And incidentally, those of you who have done relic hunting know that in the battlefields like the wilderness, you find these stuck in the ground. The man would fire, he'd, he'd stick it in the ground and shoot and then move forward and forget this. He might as well have a club, he's out of business. <laughs> Or he would put it in here and shoot it and it'd quiver in a tree, like that. Or it'd go through somebody. But it was complicated. But he'd have to take this ramrod out, first of all. Take the bullet, tear it, put it in, hopefully the right way. If he's excited, he'd put it the other way. At Gettysburg, you know, after Gettysburg, they found one musket with 23 rounds put in, put in this barrel, and the guy had forgotten to put the percussion cap on. He would tap it down, bring this back, fumble in the, in the cap box here and take out one of those little fulminite caps and put it on, and he's ready to fire. They say a good soldier could do this four times a minute, but not if the enemy were close or not if it were cold like tonight, he had dropped the cap. But this is all, this is the way they fought the war. This, of course, was a great improvement over the smoothbore because of its greater range. But as far as the federal side is concerned, they should never have fought the war with this gun at all. Because they had, they had several others, and we'll discuss the two right here that Arnold kindly brought along, that were patented and developed before the war broke out. In other words, the federal side believed in a fair ball game, and they fought the South with the same kind of weapon the South had to fight with because the South did not have the factories to make in any quantity of breech-loading guns. Now, this is a Spencer rifle. This is the infantry model with a triangular bayonet. The Navy model had a saber bayonet, and this, of course, was made in great numbers for the cavalry in a, in a carbine uh, form. Now, this is a seven-shot repeater loaded in this magazine. The soldiers were issued a cartridge box like a quiver called the Blakesley with, I think, seven, uh, seven or eight of these. Um, Thank you. Now this is a breech loader. <coughs> uh, very simple to operate. Seven shots. Rifled. Extremely accurate. But, more important than all that, the soldier didn't have to stand up to load. Apart from the rapidity of fire, he could stay prone and just work that level. That gun was patented in 1860. 
and they made, they were all ready to do business. We'll discuss why they didn't in a minute. The other one is equally interesting. This is the Henry, and this, this is a night of surprises. It's got an iron frame. I, you know, I've never seen one before, and this was used by 5th Tennessee Cavalry. This is a 16-shot repeater, patented in 1860, with the magazine running all the way down here. <coughs> this was so popular that men bought them because the government would not issue them, about $50 a throw, when they could. 16-shot repeater, very, I, I hate to use it because I don't want to hurt anything, but just, just like that, the ancestor, the immediate ancestor of the Winchester. I don't... That's all. And the cartridge you saw is, a, is either for this, I forget which, Spencer or the, or the Henry, but it's a Civil War cartridge. So those two and others, including the shops which had gas leakage, the Colt revolving rifle, which was... Um, a breech loader, but a rather interesting one. Colt, you know, it tried to have a rifle like his revolver. But the trouble was, imagine that this is a Colt revolving rifle with a cylinder here. The, sometimes one of these would go off accidentally and cut the soldier's fingers off, and there was somewhat of a reluctance to use it too often <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> Why didn't they use the weapons? Due to a gentleman whom some of you may admire very much, um, Stanton. And I'd like to discuss his role in the non-adoption of these weapons before we go on with the tactics. Um, a while ago, I prepared a paper on, on Secretary of War Stanton and tried to get it published. The old school of historians would not touch it because you know the general idea about Secretary of War Stanton. He was incorruptible. He came in when Cameron, who was somewhat of a crook, had uh, made it impossible for Lincoln to keep Cameron any longer. Stanton came in, and at great pers personal sacrifice, he wore himself out for the good of the Union. I, I don't think Stanton was that at all. This, this is important because Stanton had it in his power to insist that the innovations which were coming up as a result of the Industrial Revolution be adopted in the military service. Let me mention a few of them which he should have um, or could have, have helped. As you know, he took control of the telegraph under his own personal control. He took uh, control of the Secret Service. He became a tyrant as far as... Uh, uh, the writ of habeas corpus and the trial by military court of civilians during the war may be justified by military necessity. But think for a moment of a few of the other new ideas that came on which Stanton squelched and in my opinion did a very grave injury to the federal war effort. First of all, in the field of ordnance. Uh, he had as his uh, chief of ordnance Ripley. Ripley was an, was an older man who, was, who believed that the, because we had won in 1812 and in the Mexican War with the smoothbore muzzle loader, that's the best gun there is. Uh, Lincoln was a very um, imaginative person. He liked to try out new things. He had the Spencer rifle tried out in front of him. But uh, Ripley wouldn't, uh, Stanton would not back Lincoln in getting these new weapons adopted. Take the medical service. The head of the medical department of the army, uh, Lawton, had been in service in 1811. His successor was 64 years old, Finley. Hammond came along with new ideas about uh, modernizing the, mil uh, the medical service about instituting an ambulance service, stretcher bearers and so forth. Uh, 
after, first, uh, after second full run, men died of starvation because nobody uh, wounded because nobody took them off, took them off the field. Hammond, a young doctor, came along, and most of this happened to young younger men, by the way. Hammond came along and said, for God's sakes, let's have some kind of a ambulance service. Well, Stanton, and he was backed by the Sanitary Commission. Stanton didn't like him and finally got him railroaded out of the service. He's the one that started the Army Medical Museum, became very prominent afterwards. Take the signal service with Major Meyer. Meyer developed the signal service. Stanton got rid of him. Take Haupt in the military railroads. Haupt's service, which uh, I try to show in the books coming out, during Second Bull Run and especially Gettysburg was very outstanding. One reason you never hear about Haupt was that Stanton's boy who succeeded Haupt never even mentioned Haupt in his final report at the end of the war. And yet it was Haupt who made the military railroads click. Stanton got rid of him. Stanton never supported Lowe in the balloon service. He might have. Zeppelin was over here from Germany. He saw a big future in, in military balloons, but not our people. And you can go on and on like that with these new ideas, which call for <coughs> imagination. Stanton not only did not um, permit them to be tried, he personally saw to it that anyone who was presumptuous enough to come up with a new idea, his wagon would be fixed. I could go on and on about Stanton. That's not the subject of the, of the talk. He was a physical coward. The one time he got close to combat, he learned the Confederate picket line was out there, and he said, well, we've got to get out of here, and he left. Um, I don't want to go into his possible involvement in Lincoln's death or anything like that. I'm just talking about his refusal to accept or think of new ideas. A man named Francis developed a fine, um, a fine lifeboat and pontoon bridge. He, uh, he got the idea was taken over by Russia and European countries. Lincoln liked it, but Stanton wouldn't even give him the courtesy of, 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 of uh, <coughs> thinking about it. I think a good bit of the blame for the lack of innovation in tactics and so forth is due to, was due to a natural tendency for the men who had learned, studied tactics under Mayen at West Point to stick to what they had learned as young cadets and young officers once they joined their regiments. Now some broke away. For example, Upton who uh, graduated from West Point in 1860 or 61, I'm not sure which, um, came up with a new system of tactics and, and was able to try them out. Grant uh, will disappoint you and then you'll find that his stubbornness and his refusal to be pessimistic plus superiority of men made him stick it out in 1864 and 65. But if you study all the generals, and you study especially the diaries of the soldiers who fought under them, you will find that in 1864 especially, the Federal infantry was forced to attack entrenched positions without any reconnoitering being done by higher generals at all. In fact, I've read several diaries where they, no general at all was seen on the, in the battle lines or in the immediate for weeks at a time. The charge of Cold Harbor was made without any reconnaissance at all. The, um, uh, today is the 108th anniversary of the Battle of Fredericksburg. 108 years ago this afternoon, this evening, 13,000 federal soldiers were killed or wounded in a hopeless assault at Fredericksburg. We blame that on Burnside. We said that he didn't have a brain in his head. But this went on all through the war. And at Cold Harbor, which is a good one to stick with, uh, let's, let's imagine for a moment what the situation was. The Confederates were entrenched with a headlog 
and a little slit like a slit trench to fire through. The, at each corner of apexes of the trenches were smoothbore brass napoleons, which were uh, tremendously lethal at short, at close range. Using grape or canister, they threw out a cone of fire like this, which was ideal against the line attack. The federal troops attacked in mass formation. That meant that there was 19 inches between each man and they were shoulder to shoulder, like a tremendous rectangle moving across an open field, subject not only to the infantry firing through these slits, but to crossfire, because the trenches went like this, crossfire both ways. And yet some of the men got within a very few yards of the Confederate position before they were cut down. There was absolutely no hope that the attack could succeed, none at all. With several men deep in the trenches, one man firing and the others loading and just passing, <coughs> passing the rifles up to the man in front. The um, same thing at Antietam with uh, Cedric, uh, Cedric's uh, division of Sumner's Corps. 3,000 men attacking 10 Confederate brigades in, in column of line, that is, a long column with each regiment in line with about 15 paces. Imagine about seven or 800 men in a straight line, 15 paces back, another regiment like that. In other words, you have another huge rectangle with one line of regiments after another, 15 paces, right in the open. Sumner was an old cavalry general. He said, we'll break through. The attack was over in about 20 minutes. Of the 3,000 men, 2,225 had been hit in about 15 to 20 minutes. The men on the flank, nobody could shoot except the men in the front row and the men in the back if they did an about face. There was no one else could fire. There was no flank, flank protection. You just marched in front of the, man, the, the men in front of you. You're not going to shoot them, supposedly. So you don't shoot anybody. All you can do is march to certain death. And of course, I think you will agree, the attack at Gettysburg, third day of Pickett's charge, can only be justified on the hope that they could break through. Normally, such tactics amounted to mass murder. The um, casualties of the war did not have to be anything like this. Now, the Confederates learned quite a bit, and the federal soldiers in the West tended to open up. One of the main reasons that of the federal successes in the West is that they had fewer West Pointers who were imbued with parade ground soldiers. The men were allowed to use their natural pioneer instinct, which was to open up. In the East, with the men from the cities more used to being together and herded around, it was easier to handle them as and make machine soldiers out of them. The, um, the Confederate initiative was allowed as time went on, and we have read several descriptions of how the fighting was. Several Confederates say that in an attack, they would send a few men up, spread out, and they would uh, protect by fire while another group would make a short rush and hit the ground. That type of attack became more and more common. Not the Federal attack. Close order. And the con uh, Confederates would look, crouch down under the smoke and shoot at these men who were massed right out there in front of them while the, the Federals most of the time uh, couldn't see anything through the smoke at all. How much was learned, you, you say? Well, that's what I'm going to conclude with. How much was learned from all this? The um, foreign countries had observers over here. Lord Wolsey from England came over, spent a while at Lee's headquarters the Army of Northern Virginia and went elsewhere. He learned practically nothing. They were not impressed with our lack of, of snap and, uh, and good drill. They, they were not impressed with the casual way an enlisted man saluted an officer. This, to them, to these observers, meant good soldiers, and in a way it does. 
but not necessarily in combat. <clears throat> so in 1880, Wolsey, who was now commander-in-chief of the British Army, said that um, entrenchments are a waste of time. You must go get them, like Hood did at Nashville, lost his army in the process. Um, the Germans learned quite a bit. They, they had observers over here. The French learned nothing. The Germans learned the value of using the skirmishes, and, but having the lines spread out that followed the skirmishes in the attack. And they used this against the, against the Austrians in 1866, and they used it uh, against the French in 1870-71. You see, our war is really not the first modern war, the Civil War, because it was a war with muzzleloaders on both sides, primarily. The next war, the 1866 war, was with the Prussians armed with the breech uh, loader, the needle gun, and the Austrians armed with the muzzleloader. Uh, muzzle and then the war of 1870-71 was a, the first war when both sides were armed with the breech um, loader. In that experience, I found that the artillery has to be a support weapon that the French did not learn this. The French came out with the first really good machine gun, the mitrailleurs, which they put right up in the front lines and the German artillery proceeded to knock it out. The same we did with our rocket batteries and our machine guns on the peninsula in 1862. Put them right up in the front lines and have the artillery blast them out of it. So the experience continued on through up to World War I. If you were to read in detail the tactics of the French in 1914 and the British in 1914, you would swear to God you're back at, at Antietam. At, on the Marne in 1914, the French infantry wore red trousers. They attacked in mass formation against German machine guns. They sent lancers against German machine guns. And France lost its entire generation right then and there. The British, under Lord Haig, who had his position, one, because he came from a family that made a mighty good whiskey, and also because he had connections with the royal family. He was commander of the British Expeditionary Forces until, uh, uh, until replaced. He believed that more than one machine gun per regiment was a waste of of machine guns. The cavalry would come back and attack in saber with sabers. This had been disabused in the Civil War where uh, <coughs> cavalry dismounted and would cut to pieces cavalry charging mounted. He believed that artillery was only useful against green troops. As a result, by 1916, the flower of, of the British Army was gone, hence position she, she's in today, the people, the best, the very top leaders were gone after 1916 and 1917. You can't lose your best men and come out just as good as when you start. On the Somme in 1916, the British attacked for three months and took a total of seven miles. They lost 300,000 men and the French lost 200,000. And they'd taken seven miles fighting against massed artillery and German tanks, men against machines. They had learned nothing from the experience of the Civil War. A young officer, a captain named Liddell Hart, I'm sure you've read of him, was wounded on the Somme in 1916. He wrote a book describing it, the, the type of warfare waged, and they wouldn't publish it. They said it was too accurate. He and another British officer are the two best critics of our civil war and warfare in general, I think. Sometimes it takes a neutral to really see, see how we are. J.F.C. Fuller, whose book on uh, the three-volume work on the military history of the Western world, I heartily commend it, all of you who are interested in the development of tactics. Of course, Jay Lugas is doing, doing some good work now, but he will cite them time and again. The, um, the, uh, what I want to close with are two examples where these 
the lessons could have been learned, the, the use of a highly mobile force like cavalry, like Sheridan used it at, at uh, Winchester, with a holding force, but something to break the stalemate. Uh, in 1915, the Germans tried gas at Ypres. Here was a, a new weapon, took imagination to have troops ready to exploit this new weapon. The, the high command didn't have it. It seems to be ingrained that new ideas cannot be accepted. They made a major breakthrough but didn't follow it up. The British concentrated tanks in 1917 Finally, at the insistence of Churchill and Fuller and others, they concentrated 378 tanks instead of spreading them out. They made a major breakthrough. Again, the lack of imagination on the high command's point, and they didn't exploit that breakthrough either. In other words, what I'm trying to say this evening is we should be very careful in insisting that our academies and our teaching Permit the, the, not the nut, but the person with imagination to uh, not to be kept out. For example, the, probably the outstanding naval hero in the Federal Navy was Cushing. He was kicked out of the Navy, out of Annapolis, because he didn't have the characteristics to make a good office. The, um, I know from experience that at the Bulge, for the bulge. The high command was sent reports on the buildup of the Germans for, for a great offensive in a narrow sector. These reports were not listened to because they didn't, they didn't want to believe that this could be done by a defeated enemy. I will agree that we won, but at a very heavy cost. What we must be careful in the future, and the tragedy of the Civil War is it did not have to cost us 600,000 dead. The lessons were there. We had the tradition of a different type of tactics, and I think that more research will reveal why, why we were so prone not to adopt what that which by nature we thought was natural for us. Thank you very much. Right, thank you, Dr. Lord, for a very fine talk. Uh, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the roundtable for your appearance here and give you uh, remembrance of your appearance here, the Gallant Service Award of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. Discussion? Uh. I'm not any tactician or anything like that, but I was led to believe that the developments of tactics during the Crimean War, just before the Civil War, had a great deal to do with the way they conducted the Civil War. If I'm correctly informed, we had observers over there, including McClellan, and I think. Hardy's tactics was somewhat revised when his fellows came back. <coughs> and there was a lot of pitching, even early in the Civil War, that some of the antique formations in Hardy wouldn't work. And that the Crimean War was really the first modern use of trenches. Would you care to comment? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And um, I apologize, I had my notes, but I didn't use them. You're right. The, um, we sent three observers over, McClellan for the cavalry, Mordecai for ordnance, and Delafield for engineers. Now, as you know, the, most of the fighting was the siege of Sevastopol, which was permanent fortifications. This, di and I should have made this point, this differs from hasty field entrenchments, which had to be thrown up uh, in our type of, of, of warfare. Now, the point that 
that I think I can add, and you brought out a couple yourself, is this. McClellan, whom we're most interested in, the, the other two, Delafield and Mordecai, are, are reporting technically on engineer equipment and Mordecai on weapons. McClellan reported on tactics. Now, McClellan arrived in the Crimea after, after Balaklava, after the Alma, and so forth. After the fighting, which he should have seen, had he, we wished he had seen it. Because, as you know, at Balaklava, the charge of the 600 cavalry against Russian guns was noble, but ce n'est pas la guerre, it's not war, and so forth and so on. McClellan got over there when they got into fixed um, trench uh, siege operations. And he, as you know, he carried that to a, I think, to a, a rather ridiculous degree at Yorktown and later on. I think it was an unfortunate thing he didn't get there sooner and could have seen the Russian attack. The Russian under Suvarov believed in, the, the saying was, the bullet's a bad boy, the bandit is a good boy. In other words, close with him. And uh, it was, uh, he could have seen a lot then of the futility of, of mass attack. Dr. Lord, I, I gather that, that from what you tell us here, the old cliche is that war is much too important for things to be left to the professional soldier. Should be left, that they should be under the control of the people. Yes, in the final I, analysis. In the final analysis, I, in our tradition, of course, that it is under the civil authority. I, I would add this to the, what you're just uh, suggesting, and that is this. The time is long past when we can afford to just turn out from our professional academies the kind who learn that the way to get ahead is to subordinate no matter what you think and, and just stay with a narrow concept. Now, both academies, I understand, as I said, my boys at one of them, uh, now, uh, you are not finished when you get graduate from an academy. You go on to graduate school and you branch out. In this day and age, the, the fellow who graduates from the, one of the academies now will be in an important <coughs> position in international relations 20 years from now. You cannot afford the narrow concept that we used to have. And uh, politically, in whatever way it is done, we will have to insist that the academies broaden their thing. Now, let me give you an example which bothers me very much. Um, um, a roommate of my son at the academy is, has just left. Um, he was in the, with the Marines in Vietnam. An upperclassman got him and said that he was not able to take it. Well, this upperclassman only graduated from high school, then by political connections went to the academy. Who's to say that a, that a fellow who's been in combat in Vietnam can't take it? I can't say whether any one of you can take it. You can't say whether I can. But it's this old school thing, which in a way is good. They, they're two schools of thought. Um, this keeps the tradition of the academies. This builds character and so forth. On the other hand, uh, <coughs> we cannot afford any longer to go just with the past. Well, uh, speaking about class, I've read the opinions of, of some other uh, American military tacticians. They regard it as one of the most over-propagandized, stupid military operations in military history. And they regard it as one of the most, uh, uh, the result of a very romantic uh, Hitler poem but it was actually a very, very devastating and stupid operation. And uh, it's not worthy of, of, of all the propaganda that the British have given, which is typical of, of, of the British and their, their, uh, their, uh, their establishment. But uh, to get back to my point that I wanted to make, is that we still suffer in our services from a great deal of mental constipation. And we have, as a prime example, uh, men like uh, uh, Admiral Rickover, who's been fighting an uphill battle to, for, for 25, 30 years to bring in something which is now accepted and which is regarded as one of our prime weapons, nuclear submarine. 
without it, where would we be today? I have to agree with you. Now, in World War II, well, in the Spanish Civil War, 1936, the Germans came out with the 88 millimeter gun. Our ordnance people and our people said, it's no good. Our gun is just as good. Now, any of you who've seen American tanks look like cheese because the 88 millimeter gun outranged anything we had, this is what I call wrong. This is what I'm talking about. I, I'm <coughs> glad we won, too. And a lot of you will say, well, hell, we won, didn't we? But it took 46 million people to defeat 21 million Axis six years before they licked them and at a tremendous cost, from 40 to 39 to 45. And the Jap Neem order was better than our Neem order. We finally got them out there after enough people bitched about it. This is what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. Uh, you had mentioned that the, the British and the French had learned anything in World War I. Now, what about the Americans? We didn't learn much more. We just, of course, had French instructors and British instructors over. Uh, a good example, a very minor example, is our trench helmet. We copied the British. The German trench helmet was a lot better. It covered the back of the neck. Why did we, why did we copy the British? We, now we have a better trench helmet. But we we operated on a spread out formation. Yes, this is the point I'm making. Yes, we did. Didn't we? Yeah, we spread out more we in there. Out, I'm talking more out. of the earlier years of the war. We, when didn't, the, well, we didn't move them in mass formations no. on the line. No. I was an old-time infantryman <coughs> myself in World War II, and I, and I learned that from my officers, that at World War I, they learned that one lesson. To spread they out. eliminated that mass formation line. Yes? Uh, no, I can't, because mainly they didn't. I can't think of one offhand. Um, the only way it could have been done was, uh, well, there are two things that worked against it. One was that you didn't have the rapidity of fire. It did work in smaller cases when the men were armed with spencers, because they keep they they would get control of the firepower situation. No, you couldn't. And I don't know of any. And the other, of course, was the fact that in the Civil War they didn't have good artillery preparation. Uh, most of the artillery was counter-battery work. They didn't have. The, the terrain wasn't favorable in many cases to concentrate artillery, and they didn't have overhead fire uh, like they did in later wars. I'd like to open up a can of worms and uh, find out what do you think Stanton's uh, uh, reasons were for, uh, for fighting all these uh, new weapon developments? I think it was his nature. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you frankly, and I think I could almost, I think he was insane. He was certainly insane when he was young. This has been demonstrated. I, I think he was mad. So you don't think anything ulterior? He went into explosions of rage, rage over nothing. Bad as you pay him out to 
Why was Lincoln his captain? They worked together musically. He took a lot of blame for things that Lincoln might have done, and he's still taking blame. I'm not saying he's a saint by any means. I, I couldn't stand that person. But I think that the country was darn lucky to have him. That opens up another question then. Uh, if uh, you say of, of Lincoln backing Stanton, why was it then that uh, Lincoln, who was in on, on seeing a lot of these weapons tested, why didn't he push a little harder to get Stanton to accept these things? He should have. Because he had, he had other things to do. I think he should have. I think Lincoln. I, uh, you know, Lincoln need to, needed to be pushed. His wife pushed him to be politically ambitious. I, I think Lincoln should have insisted. He did get uh, Verdan. He stuck up for Verdan and got the Sharps uh, rifle. But that's just for us. That's uh, I, generally, he just uh, just didn't push. I think he should have. I, I made some notes as you were talking. And I'll refer to them right now, if I may. I Sounds like a court. court. <laughs> I don't mean to, but I disagree with much of what you said, and I'll be interested in your reaction to what I say now. Okay. Uh, I've read Hardy and Casey and Scott and McClellan, as I suppose you have, and Pete has, and I'm sure I don't know whether others have or not. I find no significant differences in them. I tried several years ago to trace them back, and you can trace back their tactics, I think, into the 1830s and further, all the way back to Napoleon. So that basically the tactics the soldiers learned from Hardy and Scott and Casey come from the Napoleonic Wars. Now, if this is true, then it's quite, uh, uh, if it's true, then according to the topic you assigned yourself, you ought to consider, are the weapons that much different between what Napoleon used and what the Civil War soldiers used? Uh, I'd like I, to, I think, I'd like I think to uh, suggest then that the illustration you draw between learning nothing from Braddock fighting Indians hiding behind trees has very little to do with the Civil War. I think the regular army learned that lesson at that point, and you can see it reflected over and over again on the western frontier. Uh, to cite one example, uh, Robert E. Lee at Fort Griffin with his uh, cavalry unit on the western frontier. Rather, you ought to address your comments to a regular army against a regular army, or rather a formal army against a formal army. Because after all, Grant wasn't fighting Indians behind trees. He was fighting an organized military unit, the Confederate Army. Uh, it seems to me, too, that it's, it has little to do with it to, to talk about most of the weapons you have there. Uh, because they were not produced in significant quantities and used in significant cases enough to influence the overall uh, tactics of the war. Well, my point is you they should have really been. rather address yourself to whether or not the Springfield musket uh, what influence it had or did not have on the tactics of the Army, it seems to me. Even if atom bombs had been invented in 1860, but were not used in the Civil War, uh, then this has very little to do with your subject as I understood it. Uh, it also seems to me that to talk about uh, a rifleman being able to shoot with any accuracy up to 400 and 500 yards is uh, very difficult to substantiate. It is, in fact, right now very difficult to be very accurate at 500 yards uh, with the present military weapons, let alone with uh, the, the kind of weapons they were using. Uh, I think uh, also when you talk about the influence of the Industrial Revolution on weapons, uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, it seems to me the influence of the Industrial Revolution on weapons deals with the manufacturing process, not the developmental aspect of weapons. And I, I think I'd like to have you comment on that. As far as Hammond goes, and I agree with Pete on, on, much, on what he says about Stanton, I guess I've become an old line historian at this point. But Hammond's difficulties with Stanton basically were over the Sanitary Commission. We had stretcher bearers and ambulances before and after Hammond. This is a minor part of it. I think you might have mentioned, too, that uh, uh, the tactics that both sides used were those that the principal leaders saw used in the Mexican War and saw them used there with some success by our side. And it was natural enough, it seems to me, that after that experience, they would try and use them in the Civil War. Uh, finally, it seems to me, too, in 60, late 64, anyway, and certainly in 65, uh, there was less and less, generally speaking, effort by the Union Army in terms of frontal attacks and more and more efforts of uh, realization, uh, more and more realization that this was not a very successful way to go, more efforts of flanking. Uh, Richburg, Richmond and Petersburg in Atlanta. These are big flanking campaigns, much more than they are direct frontal assaults, generally speaking. Uh, 
Also, it seems to me one more point I'd make, and then I'll not be difficult. You talk about the average uh, Civil War soldier's pioneer instinct, making him want to spread out. I, I, I find this difficult to believe. Many of the northern, at least, Civil War soldiers uh, had no pioneer instinct. Well, they were from cities. Uh, I talked about the West as compared with. Uh, even in the West, I think it's very difficult to substantiate. And in the, in the yes, I think this is right. Very few had ever uh, slept out under the stars before they went to the army. Few had ever cooked meat before on an open fire, this sort of thing. Uh, and finally, it seems to me that looking at it this way, that if the weapons, the basic weapons that were used, not those invented, but those used, uh, were much like those used in the Revolutionary War, then it's easy to see why the same tactics were used. While the exact contrary is, is wrong in, the, in World War II, where the weapons are different, where you have extensive use of barbed wire, vastly improved artillery, and the machine guns. Well, I'm not going to try to answer all of that, but um, <laughs> I'd like to answer your last point. My, uh, my point was, I tried to make, that um, the weapons were completely different from the Revolution. In the Revolution, you didn't, um, uh, the, the maximum effective range was about 75 yards. This meant that you could get very close to your adversary in close formation safely. And then, if you had a very well-disciplined uh, force, you could have them fire by command and literally blast your way through. Now, there's a lot of difference between being able to 